You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Blogging Heads TV. This is Culture Determined, and I'm your host, Arya Godwaid. And my guest today is John Gans. Uh, John, could you please introduce yourself? Uh, hi, I'm John Gans. Uh, I'm a writer. I'm currently working on a book about uh, populism in the early 90s. Um, I have a Substack called On Popular Front. And I've written for The New Republic, uh, The Baffler, The Time, the, the New York Times, The Washington Post, and a few other places about politics and culture. Uh, so thanks for coming on. And you're also sure. uh, you're, 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 oh, in Gawker. In Gawker. So we're going to be talking mm-hmm. first yep. about a piece that you uh, wrote for Gawker recently. And it's about the sure. show White, White Lotus. Um, is it the White Lotus or White Lotus? I think it's the it's White the Lotus. The White Lotus, which was is an HBO, yeah. you know, sort of six episode miniseries sort of thing. Although they're, I think they're going to try to do a season two, and um, it was fairly popular, at least in terms of the discourse. People seem to mostly like it. And yeah, they you, loved it. And you uh, gave it a scathing review, and I I mostly liked it also. So I thought it'd be interesting yeah. to bat around. And so if so, I I was somewhat late to it and watched it after it finished and got inadvertently semi-spoiled for one of the twists in the end. So, oh. um, so if there's people who um, are thinking about whether to watch it or not, let's, we'll, we'll have oh. a, you know, there'll be plenty of spoilers in this, but if, if there's someone who has heard about the show and thinking, should I devote six hours of my late summer to watching it? Would you say yes or no? Well, I actually, I don't know, depending if you enjoy that sort of thing. I actually had trouble uh, fi- finishing the show, I I st- watched the first episode just because you know everybody was watching it and they want uh, needed something to do, and, and I disliked it. But then I, you know, I started talking to Leah Finnegan, my editor at Gawker, and I told her, you know, she we were just chatting, and she said, "Did you watch White Lotus?" And I said, "I couldn't stand it." And she said, "Oh, you should write about that because you know it's pretty popular." So then I had to watch the, sh- the rest of the balance of the show which was hard for me because I really enjoyed it so little, you know, usually even when something it's TV, like how bad can it, how unpleasant an experience can it be, uh-huh. you know, but I was really sh- struggling to, I would pause the episode, do the dishes, empty the dishwasher, water the plants. And, you know, I would just kept on do finding stuff to do around the house to kind of mm. like, I just found it to be so tedious and, difficult to watch that I it, it, it made me more and more angry at the show because I was like this is just not entertaining me and I'm I mean there were the, I will say that the perform to their credit the performances of the actors on the show was you know for the most part very fine um and and I give them credit for working with what I thought was pretty subpar script mm-hmm. but yeah I really struggled with it I was really baffled by the acclaim that it got um and i thought it was just kind of a a, a meager show uh but I, you know i wondered what so I, I was really confused by the the celebration of it and people thought it was such a, w- a wickedly clever satire but mm-hmm. i just it, it didn't it didn't resonate with me in any way i i thought that the you know, the, the, you know, 
granted when you when you write something like that the characters are going to be kind of if not stereotypes they're going to kind of reflect some some recognizable figures from culture that are easy to skewer or make fun of so there's going to be some caricature but i just found them to be so both you know just just not quite just so hollow and not mm-hmm. believable as characters i just really found the show to be r- difficult to take take seriously even to the point it's a satire uh-huh. but i was what 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 do you think is so compelling about it well, I, you know, in the end, I would give it about a B plus. Um, and so I think yeah. some people were over praising it. And of course, you know, it, it's probably part of it has to do with um, just the circumstances in which people are receiving it. And maybe they're just desperate for entertainment because they're once again scared of going outside and hanging out with their friends or that, you know, it's sure it's, you know, there's plenty of, you know, you, yeah, you did, there's, a, there's plenty of stuff that aside from the plot and the character's is enjoyable about it such as it's very like well made there's these beautiful shots of hawaii and lots of shots of the waves crashing probably too many i would have cut a few of those uh as as we went along but yeah the performances are basically all great and it's a lot of people who are sort of like uh somewhat supporting character types who are getting more attention and um and some i guess some sort of like beloved type actors like uh steve zahn and um uh, the woman whose name is escaping me, who is Jennifer Mrs. Coolidge. Yeah, Jennifer Coolidge, and also Mrs. Coach yeah. from Friday Night Lights, Connie Britton, um, who is oh. like super beloved, and yeah. you know, so and yeah, and just and also maybe there's, I don't know. I, I, after seeing this show, I don't know whether you'll be more or less likely to want to go on like an all inclusive resort vacation to Hawaii or not. But it is there is some, at least somewhat like oh, like look how pretty it is. So there is so there is that. Um, okay, why don't we say, I would say if you have heard about the show and you are interested in it, you might as well check it out and maybe you'll be so put off by it like John was and you will not be like contractually obligated to finish it to write a review that you'll just go on with your life. And so I would say yes. check it out if you enjoy it. It is only six episodes, which is nice that they didn't stretch itself into ten or something. It probably could have even been four. I would have jumped out the window. <laughs> it definitely could have been shorter. Yeah. And, but it's, yes. I thought it was sort of a fine kind of thing to pass the time but i don't you know this isn't like um sopranos or something um well what but what do you think what i mean people thought and in a way they haven't been really articulated that it was such a accurate satire of contemporary life and the upper class yeah what about it that was some yeah this like there was some overpraise and of course being that's I mean, your review sort of plays the other side of this. You know, being like super positive and or or super negative about something is a good way to get attention, especially on social media. Mm-hmm. If, if someone is like, "This is the greatest thing ever," lots of people are happy to retweet it. If people are like, "This fucking sucks," you know, we hate it. It's garbage. That right. also gets people excited. And so, if you're kind of like, "Well, this is you know kind of a middling thing," then that sort of review doesn't do well online. So that's part of it. Okay, why don't we no. um, let, let's move into? So, if you have not seen the show, you're going to want to skip, you know, skip forward. 15, 20, 30 minutes or so. And, um, cause we'll get into a more spoiler part because there is sort of a, uh, you know, there are some twists that maybe you wouldn't want to be spoiled. As I said, I was sort of half spoiled about it just from seeing jokes online. Um, so, okay. So everyone has been warned. And yeah, as in, I think maybe, um, is that, I mean, a lot of people are saying this is, this is satire. Has anyone described it as farce? It seems like maybe it's closer to that tradition. Than satire, it certainly has you know 
there's sort of a satirical lens that all the or most of the characters are being placed under. And I think when I saw the second episode I, afterwards, I was like, oh, I, I know what the show is about. This is about how everyone is annoying in a different way. Um, because all the characters are sort of, almost all the characters are sort of jerks uh, or assholes or super, or super self-involved. And all of the guests are uh, basically rich white people with one <laughs> possible exception. And these are the kind of people that, you know, we enjoy laughing at and seeing their foibles. And you make the point that who is watching this show is mostly rich white people also. And so uh, they enjoy seeing their classes foibles pointed out in sort of the stuff, stuff white people say style of, of satire uh, that's been around for a while. So do that, but there is sort of well, a, it is sort of a like farcical thing. And especially the ending becomes very farcical in a, in sort of, in a dark way where spoiler, once again, the sort of master of ceremonies of the show, uh, Armand, the manager of the hotel, uh, takes a shit in his uh, nemesis, nemesis's luggage and then ends up getting accidentally stabbed by him and dies. And so that is very silly. And, um, and you know, and, and they very clearly show him taking a crap um, or, you know, I assume they use special effects, taking a crap on this guy's clothing and they show the turds there. Mm. And so that that is so ridiculous, and and sort of the over to top the top nature of his character arc of uh, like descending into booze and drug like madness like at the flip of a switch like this whole thing takes place within a week and uh, you know he's just like he's like the most proper um, guy in the beginning and then you know immediately he's like having a debauch uh, experience of, with booze and pills so that is yeah. not so it, this it wasn't. Yes, that seemed more like a farcical thing, and there's also like an upstairs downstairs aspect to it of a Downton Abbey or something where you have the rich people and the servants and their interactions, and mostly those interactions end up being bad for the servants because they don't have any power and like shit rolls downhill. And most and so most of the interactions between so each like each there's three like groups of guests. Each one of them has an involved interaction with one of the people who works at the hotel. And in two of those cases, it ends disastrously for the hotel worker. And in one of them is sort of ambiguous. And Alicia, that zombie Belinda, and she doesn't get murdered or anything, but just like her time was wasted and, and she moves on. Um, so, but anyway, but also I just thought like it was funny. Like the jokes were, were there. They were funny. So I don't know. Like I said, B plus. This isn't, I don't think this is in 50 years people are going to be watching White Lotus. No. To figure out what life was like in 2021. No. But, um, yeah, so that was that was my overall thought. Uh, yeah, I mean, okay, so the the problem I have, okay, it, I guess there's a little something like, okay, you know, something in the tradition of Faulty Towers or something like that, something super farcical about Armand's character, especially with these trying to keep it together, and he has these kind of passive aggressive uh, relationships with the annoying guests, and um, yeah, I can see that, but I, I felt like the the, the thing that that undermined uh, the the whole upstairs downstairs aspect of it was that you know the the people who were taken most seriously on the show in the end, even though they weren't portrayed uh, always um, sympathetically, were the rich people. And then you know the the characterization of the of the servants or the people, the service of the hotel were, was, was pretty thin. I mean, Armand has no biography other than the fact that we is a gay guy who falls off the wagon. And in some ways, 
and it gets involved in again in partying and drugs in some ways it's you know a little bit of a cliche or a stereotype and belinda Mm -hmm. has no no inner life at all she's given she has one or no pass or or anything she's she's just uh reacts to people she has one telephone conversation with a friend or family member we don't know very much about yeah, it seems like it seems like maybe it's supposed to be her son is calling uh, but maybe yeah. it's ambiguous and yeah so yeah i mean another thing that is both is built into the show is that because it was filmed during covid and i assume they made this into sort of an artistic choice as well nothing that doesn't take place at the resort except like maybe the airport is is portrayed and so right um, we don't see the home life of any of the characters even the, the ones who live in Hawaii and work at the resort, um, we only ever see them like arriving at work. And, um, and so, yeah, so the inner, I, I have, to, well, I mean, the question would be, would this, was this, was not present. I agree that neither Belinda nor Kai uh, had, who is the uh, waiter t- kind of guy who gets wrapped in with the, uh, the rich family and ends up going to jail. Uh, because of his interaction with these people, um, they are sort of blanks or very thinly sketched caricatures, and they also both both those characters are non-white. Um, but that seems to be—I mean, I think that's on purpose because you have this uh, strange plot kind of twist or non-twist in the first episode, which is we're introduced to sort of two main characters who work the hotel. There's Armand, and then there's this woman. What is her name? Layla? Lonnie. Uh, who they, Lonnie. 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 Who, who disappears from the show. Yeah, so you think that Lonnie is going to be sort of our, it's like her first day or first week or something, and so Armand is instructing her, and there's this part where he says something like, you know, you want to seem totally anonymous to these people, you just want to provide them with luxury and comfort, and they will have, like, no memory of, of who you are, and that's the goal we're going for, and then Lonnie has this crisis where it turns out that she's pregnant, hasn't told anyone, her water breaks. That, this is also sort of a farcical um, thing that happens, and she she's forced to like go into labor in the office secretly while like dinner service is going on, and then she is whisked off to the hospital. So you think episode two is going to be we're going to see her in the hospital, and like what's the ramifications of this? But actually, she never reappears. She's totally gone once she leaves the hotel. That is the end of her um, story arc. And... Well, the point of placing her in the show was to have it have this kind of his I don't know spiritualist subtext where it begins with. Well, it begins with life and it ends with death. And, you know, has a birth at the beginning and at the end somebody dies and we get the whole circle of life. And there's this this background, as you said, of the whole beautiful shots of the waves and so on and so forth. And the, the incel sun uh, gradual coming to embrace nature. There's this whole subtext of, of you know, kind of American transcendentalist nature worship uh i think in the show mm-hmm. where so i think that her character was just meant to be a book you know have this sort of archetypal bookend where you know the the show shows i don't know for what reason but it has to show sex and death and life and has these meditations on the on oh don't we all live in a jungle aren't we all animals to one another <laughs> i mean give give me a break okay but they you know and, and, they could have brought her back and then so there is this scene at the very very end where it's like everything has come full circle and you see the boat coming with a new set of rich people and then you see the in a replica of the scene from the very beginning you see the staff waiting there to receive them and Armand mm. has been replaced because he has been killed 
with the new right. manager who was wearing, the, you know, a pink uh, salmon blazer, just like Armand. And then I thought it was um, that original character back, but it's not. It's just that they found an, an actress who looks like her. And so that character has been replaced. And, you know, this new character doesn't get any lines. It's just they found someone, I assume on purpose, who looks vaguely like the original actress. And so, yeah, it's like once they're out of this bubble, and it was like sort of a quarantine COVID bubble because they filmed this during the pandemic, they are, they're totally gone. They don't matter anymore. And, you know, the circle of life or the circle of capitalism starts over again. And there'll be a new, there's a new group of rich people coming in and a new group of servants. And no one will remember Armand or... Um, or Lonnie, or Kai, who is never who's, after Kai runs off with the uh, the jewelry he has never seen. He's seen again, and we we find out that he's arrested. Um, so they're they're all they're all gone, and 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 no one cares. So that's I I have to assume that's on purpose that they they did that way because they could have brought back Lonnie when the at the very end, which takes place sometime in the future. You know, she's she's over her maternity leave and she's come back, but they they didn't do that. She's she's gone forever. And they and they also the way they, they were they didn't need to have con- like that was a choice and what does that mean I don't know exactly but like I I assume they did that on purpose. They were writing her character on the first episode like she was one of the main characters on the show. Yes, so it's sort there of a switcheroo. Been, well, it could have been a problem. Maybe the actress dropped out or 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 had health issues and they had to rewrite the show. That's possible, but I assume that this was purposeful because we probably would have found out if like she got COVID or something and had to drop out for that reason or something. But yeah, it's it's definitely a narrative. It, it was it's a su- surprising narrative move that this character, who seems like the like the Diane on Cheers, who's coming in, who's sort of new, and we're going to see everything through her eyes, that she's just gone entirely. Um, yeah. So if that was personal, do you think that adds any meaning to the uh, to the show, or or do you think that this is just more <laughs> more? Drama? I think it's a, it's an it's another aspect of the of the weak writing of the show that they, you know, began to construct a character and then created no resolution. And it would, I would say it's sort of, you know, okay, you can interpret it as being some kind of formal choice, but does it really work? I don't think so. Does it add to the notion that, you know, these people are disposable or dispensable in some way that couldn't be expressed in a different way? No, I think they just, you know, the sense that I got from the the writing and construction of the show was that they rushed it and it was not, you know, something that had been written and rewritten, but it was written quickly and they produced it probably under difficult circumstances because of COVID. Yeah. And it was sort of a... So Mike White was the creator, writer of everything, director of everything, and he didn't have a writing room, so he did it all himself. So it is is like an auteurist piece of work. Uh, a singular vision of the like that you usually uh, don't get in TV because usually there's so many people involved in a, in a TV show. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, that's, it's not surprising to me then that, you know, um, it had some problems with the writing because usually the process of writing in for TV over multiple episodes and multiple hours has a staff and, you know, they could, work on different characters and exchange ideas. And, you know, often that really works, you know, to have a large group of writers. So, yeah, I mean, I just don't think that it was um, uh, formally or, you know, in either form or content was a strong show. And I think that people really wanted it to be because they sort of wanted to recognize that, that, 
they want they wanted it to be like a must see TV moment where this is a really penetrating and interesting satire that we can enjoy, but also mm-hmm. says something deep. I think there was desire for it to be an important show. Yeah, I agree that. Uh, and it really didn't quite live up to its hype. And it it was, you know, I think um, in terms of its, you know, it's just certain things just seem so like the the two girls, the two teenage girls, like they were just really absurdly written like the the them sitting on the beach holding freud reading freud and nietzsche it's just it that's not reflected elsewhere in their characters they don't come across as the types of people who read freud and nietzsche they don't express themselves in that way even in them at their most pretentious or whatever you know that's not that's not a part of their characters and they just seem to be so tacked on to be like oh see these smarty pants mean girls this is what this is what you know and i heard that they had them watch uh, listen to red scare podcast to sort oh, of really? get their affect yeah they were they were told to, to to listen to red scare podcast but these are not in the way they express themselves in their political opinions and the way they berate their parents and so forth these are not red scare listeners you know they're pretty woke young people who are sincere they they couldn't decide it just seems like a little bit of out of out of touch to be like we're going to write these young people who are simultaneously extremely disaffected but also highly idealistic and disapproving of their parents attitudes on this that and the other subject it's just like you're trying to combine two different types of young person here and it just was like this felt you know it's it's just also like i feel like a finer writer could have like okay the okay the actor who played the douchebag guy a rich guy he's a great actor he did jake, a great job jake that. lacy that yeah. is that his name yeah he was really yeah, he, good and just you know he i guess his most famous role was he was like on the, on the last two seasons of the office and was kind yeah. of like the like somewhat normal guy brought in um to balance out some of the wackier new characters and yeah. he's sort of like a blandly handsome guy and he's also in this really silly hallmark or netflix movie in which he plays the hometown hunk of a christmas um you know a christmas romantic comedy the woman who like comes he you know he's like a lumberjack or something but Mm. so and so he he always struck me as sort of this bland inoffensive type but his performance like he is really good as this sort of like minor league sociopath who becomes obsessed with ruining the life of armand and and sort of the yeah the level of you can see how he charmed the fiance or the what the new wife, but also how he has all this like stuff rolling up beneath. Yeah. And also, I mean, the books is interesting. Why were they reading Freud and Nietzsche? Is this just an affectation? Well, they're college students. Maybe this is their their like you know over winter break. This is their reading. And then you also had mm-hmm. the Jake Lacey characters reading Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. But they were also reading. Oh, that was be- that was more on in character they were also reading yeah, so, that, I mean, that would be, so they obviously thought about these things and they have him like you know blink which came out like a dozen years ago and is like an airport read and he's like struggling through it as as the yeah, week yeah. goes on so clearly he's not like really imbibing a lot um so i don't know i no. so i feel like you know like care was put into all this shit but but maybe it just didn't have the proper result and it was so this wasn't like a dashed off thing maybe but maybe aside from the fact that it had one creator writer director and the covid protocols meant that 
you know, we never see that hospital scene or whatever. So I don't know. I, I feel like they, I don't know. I mean, the, another thing I want to ask you about is what you thought. A lot of the commentary about this took it as a, um, you know, like a race parable. Um, it, it, when it seems, if we're looking at it more as an upstairs downstairs thing, it's more of like a class, you know, the, well, it tried to touch all the, it tried to touch all the bases, right? And, and, and it was trying to make everybody happy. It was trying to be, <laughs> It was trying to be like, yes, we're conscious of race, of the issues of race and class, but we are not so, you know, virtuous about it. We still have a sense of humor about it. But the thing is, I got my sense of it was that it was trying so hard to take a uh, a look at these things in ways that would, you know, be acceptable to public what, what the perception of the of what was acceptable to public sensibilities about these topics that it ended up kind of flattening out the characters that are supposed to express the you know the the downtrodden masses so to speak mm-hmm. and i just think like it was about race it was it, it tried to get race in there it tried to get class in there and none of these ways it did it was anything more than what you can read on Twitter every day or you, what you read in opinion columns. There was no new ground broken in terms of the discourse on it. These characters were like, you know, um, oh, there was some reflection on the co- colonial imperialist past of Hawaii. You know, let's just get that in there. Mm-hmm. And then, you, you know, this, the 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 black character gets fed up with performing emotional labor for the white people. Let's get that in there. And she has sort of an applause line that's borderline offensive to me. Like I thought it was borderline offensive at the end. And then her character just disappears. She's there to like there was a there was a feeling of like okay we're going to check these boxes because we know we'll get people off our backs if we're saying. Yes, yes, we know, we know, race, class, and gender, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And it didn't, on, on none of those issues, was it provocative? And on, no, on none of those issues did it seem to be provocative, in a, or on none of those issues did it seem to make some kind of ethical point that I thought was interesting. Uh, I mean, what did it say that we don't already know about these issues? Oh, um, uh, service employees of course their relationships are, are highly exploitive and and they have to experience all con- kinds of indignities there's no reason not to show that on screen and it's important and it's interesting but this just did it in the most twitter discourse possible way it's almost like this guy was reading watching the show i was like this guy was reading twitter and just like writing a show through tweets and uh-huh. it makes it makes sense because you know okay we're all stuck inside, so it probably a lot of the material and it was through you know okay the virtual way people are experiencing things right now. Yeah. So the way the construction of every single character, the construction of the whole milieu, um, was basically these, and this is why I think it fell into these like types and stereotypes and, and cliches was just these sort of throwaway lines of people's complaints about one another. Or, or poses that they adopt on, on Twitter. So I just felt like on the issue of class, on the issue of gender, sexuality, race, it just says nothing interesting whatsoever. It does talk about those things. It does include them. I mean, it, it's difficult not to if you have a show about a resort 
you know, in Hawaii, presumably you're going to encounter differences of class and, you know, you're going to encounter differences of race and ethnicity, but the, but the inclusion of those things didn't include, it didn't have any, you know, um, compelling discussion or, or, or investigation of those social issues. They were just presented there and in a kind of boring way. And, I know, and just the way that I was, was, you know, did not play with your expectations at all. You know, like it did not say like, oh, well, perhaps we have, it wasn't quite as stupid as Crash, you know, Crash, the movie, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, was, yeah. it wasn't quite that stupid, but it was in that territory. Okay. Where, that, where, yeah, that's interesting. An interesting comparison. Another, uh, I mean, Crash, it, I would say Crash is much Worse, despite it, you know, despite it winning the best picture, I think most people. Well, it has no sense of humor. That was a huge mistake. Um, did you yeah. see the interview that Mike White, the the titular, you know, the titular New York Magazine? Yes, it was an interesting interview, and he's very defensive and clear that like he came in ready to defend himself against accusations of various things. How why is this rich white guy um, telling the story of Native Hawaiians? Uh, you know, how can you write a black character? This this sort of thing. Like he was ready for so obviously he's like within the discourse and ready to fight off people who are accusing him of cultural appropriation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's, it's well, like an said, interview that if you've seen the show, you should, I think you should check out. Um, yeah, I read, it, I read it. Well, he read it. I mean, I read it. And what I took away from that interview was that he was, you know, try, he'd be like, he, he was trying to say, Look, I had to take this, you know, I can't be perfect and I have to have freedom as an artist and take a provocative stance about some of these issues and some people not, might not like it and there's nothing I can do about it. Bullshit. It was completely, completely pious on all these issues. So if, and it, I mean, there's not, you can't make everybody happy, but I, I just found the whole thing where he was like, well, you know, I'm an artist and I can't speak to everybody's concerns and I have to go with my vision. Well, so, so much did, of cultural did, did not ring true to me. Well, so much of cultural criticism now is filtered through social media, particularly Twitter. And it is these yeah. very stupid things of a white person writing a black character. How dare you? Um, well, did anybody say that? Well, he didn't. I'm sure, I'm sure good, some but, people said that, but people well, are sort of sick of that well, at, the, at this point. The, fa- the fact of the matter is that as, as cliched as that, criticism may be he did not do a very good job at it so there there might be something to having black writers in the writers room because this his black character you know frankly you know had a very fine actress or you're not supposed to say actress anymore actor yes. uh um portraying uh the character uh, but i thought was was not particularly written in an interesting way yeah, so I mean, I, I, the character's like pretty much all the characters are thinly written and are essentially just sort of one or two note characters, and that includes, yeah, pretty like pretty much everyone, and so that is is a failing. Yeah, the, this isn't like Tony Soprano, like the like the and the fact that all these characters, I think, if there is a season two, well, the white all, people were the more the mo- well, not to the white people were the more. Um, and I, you know, this was some complaint about the show was that the you know okay, so who who. Who has a actually, I mean, this could be the point of the show in some kind of satirical, on some satirical level. It's like, who has actually an experience of growth on this vacation? It's Steve Zahn, right? You know, yeah, Steve Zahn and of, the Sun. 
And the son, the two white guys. I mean, yes. now if you want to say, oh, the show is showing that no matter what happens, the white guys will always come out on top. Because and the, and the, the thing that, well, I thought this was, I mean, I, I agree that there were cliches in the show. And the thing that I thought was really cliche was that the thing that brings the family back together is that um, uh, Zahn, the father, what is the character's name? Um, Mark. And he is very, he has a strange backstory. He's very thinly written. And I think you never learn what his job is. Uh, whereas the, right. the, the mom's job as, as this sort of this tech uh, CTO or something, it's kind of a Cheryl Sanders type for a Google type website. It, she's like, that's right. very foregrounded that she has this very high powered job. And he's sort of this beta male type. And so him, an act of physical courage, um, you know, slamming into a uh, person of color who's committing a crime um, against his, uh, you know, wife and uh, family possessions Um uh, blood and treasure what could, one could even say like that's the thing that like reinvigorates the uh carnal desire between the two of them and brings everyone back together like this is super cliche and whether this is trying to explode the cliche or is just embracing the cliche uh i don't know but yeah the yeah. fact that they all sail off except for the son who does stay sail i mean sail off he's he's you know rowing off um is sort of like a two pat of an ending uh or or maybe it's just like yeah the the point is the Rich white people, or really just rich people, seems more than rich white people, like, are basically always going to be fine. And, you know, and so it, it is sort of a, you know, the, the great Gatsby line about, you know, going into their the rich money. rich are different for me. Well, going into different their money, and their, retreating into their money and their carelessness, and, like, they leave a mess behind, and, and, and they're fine, and, like, someone someone is dead, uh, you know, someone is in jail because of their machinations. But how did he get, get totally away with that? I mean, you would imagine there was some kind of criminal investigation, he would be in some degree of trouble. I mean, they're not going to just leave a dead body. That doesn't seem plausible to me it that is, they're going to leave yeah, a dead body. So, I agree. They seem to let him off fine. I mean, I was thinking, like, would he... Um, like it seems it actually seems like a pretty open and shut case because clearly the guy did defecate and they could use DNA technology to see that those were his turds. And why well, was but then the, the case could be made? He stabbed him in a rage and then you would be in serious trouble. It's also like, like the, the, a single stab wound kills this man, maybe because he's on so many pills, like he ha- you know, his system goes into overdrive. Or just happened to get him right in, right in the in heart, heart. Yeah, direct in the heart. So there's a lot of stuff that he yeah, stabbed this is, him in the heart. This isn't he realism. Stabbed him in the heart. But if we see it as far Okay, but I'm not going to convince you. And like I said, I'm not like a stand of this show. And I think it was more B plus than an A plus. And yeah, I don't think people are going to be watching this C, 10 years from C now. C plus. <laughs> um, okay, well, maybe we can compromise on B minus. I mean, well, let me see if there's anything else yeah. I want to say about this. Um, yeah, I think I, I would just say the thing that you le- I thought you left out of your review was just like the performances are really good and they carry it. And the fact that it's sort of this team of B-listers in some sense or over the hill types. Um, but they all put in these really good performances and the, the uh, Alexander Daddario, if that's his name, I was not familiar with her at all. I thought she was really good. And, and she did seem almost like the most human, like realistically human person on screen. Um, and she, well, you know, that's she, just because we, she's a journalist and we're journalists. <laughs> well, you're, you're closer to a journalist than I am, but um, yeah, certainly her, her plight, it was sort of appeals to people who write about things on Twitter, but um, right. But yeah, but she, I mean, I thought she did a really good job. And I, I did want to say one more. So one thing that my biggest complaint about the show was I thought it didn't make any sense. And of course, if I'm saying this is a farce, why should it make sense? But this super rich family, it's like Charles Sandberg's family books a suite at this hotel. And you know, there's only one bedroom and the uh, daughter and her college best friend are sleeping on a playoff couch and they exile the incel son to a cot in the kitchen how could there not be more bedrooms in this 
suite. Like, it, like that's the whole point. Why would a family book a single bedroom suite that has two, you know, two uh, te- older teenage kids? So that didn't make any sense. And the relationship yeah. between the, the two teenage girls, it's ambiguous at first because you think maybe they're in a, in a romantic or sexual relationship with each other. They're sleeping in the same bed. They're basically a single unit. They're always together. And then if they had actually played, if they, if they had decided that they were like girlfriends and then then the betrayal of um, the friend going off with Kai would have made more sense, I think. So I don't quite know. And obviously they weren't afraid of having gay characters on the show. So I, I don't know. That was somewhat strange. And yeah, those characters, it was good performance. Well, people, think, but... The idea was that she was acquisitive and jealous and couldn't allow her friend to, that wasn't so unrealistic in a way. But uh, yeah, but why are they geez. there? Why are they sleeping in the same bed? Um, it is they seem to function as a unit, but are they? But they're I guess they're just college friends or something. I so I don't know. And she their relationship was meant to have some dimension of sexual erotic charge that was complicated. That I didn't I didn't find to be unconvincing. Just not maybe underdeveloped, but not you know people especially that age, you know, get into odd friendships that have ambivalent uh, subtext to them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that didn't strike me as particularly unrealistic or unbelievable. I thought the, w- w- what was, was the young man, you know, Oh, his phone gets destroyed and his, uh, his computer gets destroyed and he gets to reconnect with nature and the, literally the natives mm-hmm. of Hawaii. And he, I just he, he goes was, native. And he the literally is, goes native. The ending is somewhat fa- like a, a fantasy sequence almost because, you know, he just like turns away at the gate and, you know, you're like you can't, if his luggage is already on the plane, like you can't just leave <laughs> the airport. And so, and they just cut to him, you know, rowing with the, the native guys. I mean, obviously I, I, I kind of did like that character because he was so sort of dumb and um, just sort of floating along. And the, the, you know, there are people like that, especially teenage boys. And it, and I mean, he talked, Mike White talks about this in the interview of, you know, that he sort of gets to have the um, happiest ending of becoming the like, of like going native kind of thing. Well, in this because unrealistic he's stupid. Way. Yes, because he's stupid, but he doesn't, he also doesn't have any friends. And there is that funny part where, um, you know, the sister says, is arguing with the mom about him. And she says, he doesn't have any friends. And the mom says, well, what about this guy? And she says his Japanese name. And they're like, he moved away two years ago. So like the mom is so disconnected. She doesn't know that the only friend has been gone for years. And the kid is just staring at his phone all the time or playing um, on his switch. And that does seem like a type. I don't, you know, I don't know a lot of teenage boys, but that does seem like a type that exists right now. Um, and just the, the fact that no one in the family seemed to care about him. They obviously didn't even think to get him his own room. Um, and they're totally fine with him sleeping on the beach and don't even seem to notice. He always is sort of showing up late and they're like, where have you been? And so there's to- like that everyone is very self-involved on the show. And I don't know, obviously that's a, an ex- exaggeration of reality, but I, I did kind of like at least how that character functioned. I was happy for him in the end that he you know gets to row to his heart's content in the beautiful you know, the beautiful waves of Hawaii. Well, the sun, the sunset or the sunrise or whatever. I think that there was a thing that the whole... He gets to see the whale animals. also. That was, a, that was a nice scene where he gets right. to see the whale. Yeah. 
what animates the show on that kind of on an ideological subtext level and all of its farcical or cynical or satirical aspect can't quite cover up, I think is some kind of weird evangelical born again uh, belief that you basically can have these stat, these, these snap moments and leave behind, leave it all behind, mm-hmm. so to speak, and, and be reborn into a new spiritual life. And if you think about it, it's the same conceit as a vacation is that, is that it's the, you know, you, you go away and then you're, you leave your problems behind. And this was sort of a paganized nature worshiping version of this evangelical born again experience that this guy has. The kid is literally baptized. I mean, the water washes over him mm-hmm. and then he's his, his electronics, uh, all the parts of contemporary society are washed away and he right. joins into fellowship with his, his fellow man and so on. So they're rowing together on the sea. It's <laughs> so I felt like the, the Mike White, you know, grew up in an evangelical or a born again family his father was a speech writer or, or a writer for pat robertson and uh jerry falwell and when i read that i was like oh this all makes sense to me the 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 structure the structure of human experience and existential worth that the show evinces to me is a secularized version of that of, the, of that approach mm-hmm. and has similar beliefs about uh, the transformative power of experiences and you know there are no there are no tragedies we can always just you know have this radical experience of becoming a new person um well i think that's that's definitely there and i didn't know anything about white's um you know personal biography before before this i'd seen school of rock and maybe one or two other things he was involved with but i hadn't seen enlightened or maybe some of the other more personal projects of his. Um, and that, that is in there at the same time, you know, like the, the fact that, you know, uh, a character is uh, killed accidentally and another like kind of doofus. He dies with a smile on his face. You know, he, he, he's, he's, <laughs> he got his released. Yeah. He got he, his revenge. He got his revenge and he's released uh, from his mortal bondage yes the, and, this, he shuffles you know, off this mortal cool i mean you did it did, yeah. did you like the scene the final scene, like of, scene of him okay <laughs> the final scene of him the final seating he does where it's in slow motion and like operatic music is playing oh, he's in the doing an incredible job and then, and it, and then it, it's very funny and then it cuts and you see you know the outside perspective and you see that everyone realizes he, he's like obviously drunk or high on something he's just sort of like moving around in this funny way so i thought that was effective and White says in the interview that that was sort of like, like the grand send-off. White also says, interestingly, that this is the character he identifies with the most as a director who is like trying to please the rich people to give him money to make the movies and keep all the plates spinning at once, and that the original idea for the show was that this guy would get killed in the end. Like, he had that from the beginning, and other things were added on uh, is interesting. And yeah, but it, at the same time, it is a little cheap to sort of make this into a murder mystery type thing. And it's, you know, Mayor of Easttown was a big thing. And the, the show, uh, Big Little Lies. Never watched it, it. Never watched it. I go, well, Big Little Lies is a similar thing where you didn't know who the victim was. So in, in this, you know, 
someone you know from the very beginning that someone dies you know it's not jake lacy yeah. and um and you don't know who is killed or who is the killer so it's like a double mystery kind of thing um right so that is somewhat of a genre cheat to keep people interested to say what's the twist and then the twist was i didn't of- care i did <laughs> right. not care i did not care i just it was so so i didn't care if to fit that is how bad it was to me that i didn't care to find out who was the killer or who died i just didn't care i thought okay it could be his wife maybe not it's not for me to know uh but but that it was so i i'm telling you if they hadn't paid me i would not have known about it i may have read the (laughs) i might have read the wikipedia article just to find out what happened but i i I, not a single aspect of it made me want to keep watching the show and I think that I don't exactly understand what drove people. I can I can see that I give it to you that the performances are good, but I don't understand what drove people from episode to episode. Well, what's going to happen next? Who gives a shit? Yeah, I mean, probably I, I just putting in this genre twist of there's a murder mystery into it. And that helps. That compels things, especially with online fan culture of like trying to find the clues and what, you know, like deduce what is, what is going to happen next. Um, Okay. I think we, we may have, I think we may have talked enough about the white Lotus and people can decide at this point, somehow if if they haven't skipped past this part, if somehow they're still on the fence, they can uh, decide whether to watch or not. But there's another piece of yours that I wanted to talk about. And I um, referenced this on the show before an episode with Daniel Bessner, but I sort of, like I hadn't reread it before the episode, so I reread it now. But anyway, the piece is uh, from your Substack. We'll include the link below. Title is "1619 Project Revisited: The Anglo-Saxon Roots of Critical Race Theory." And as I said in the episode with Bessner, I thought this was a really interesting piece, and it sort of made me understand more about why "69 Project" angered so many people and caused such a big to do. Because I, yeah, I was when it first happened, I was like, "Well, okay, this is a magazine article, a package put together by New York Times Magazine." The following week, they're going to do a story about, you know, someone who was studying insects in New Guinea or something. And it, but it really drove a ton of people, including a lot of intelligent people to distraction, either thinking this is the greatest thing ever, or this is on the path to destroying America. And yeah. um, so I, and I had, you know, there, like there were multiple groups founded in reaction to this, like the 1776 thing and uh, Trump uh, ordered a, historical survey to be done that was put out two days before the end of his term and quickly withdrawn by um, by the Biden administration. I talked about that a little bit in the episode I did with Laura K. Field about the Claremont Institute. But anyway, um, so I appreciate this piece a lot. And uh, you wrote a couple of months ago. Can you can you kind of lay out what um, your argument is in this piece? Sure. So basically, um, what I was saying was that the reason why the 1619 project drove so many people crazy was that it kind of played with some really fundamental ideological tropes of American nationalism. And instead of just a lot of people claimed that it just rejected and made America look like it was a bad place and so, so forth. And, you know, we'd always been racist and, it didn't really. It, 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 what, it, what it did was it recast Black people in a particular role in American history that was once reserved for the Wasps, which was 
you know, the city on the hill, Puritans. These are the original virtuous inhabitants of the Republic. They predate, they predate, but like the 1619 project, it predates the foundation of the country uh, in 1776. And it says that there's, there's something special about this ethnicity that, and their experience almost a covenant as Sam Goldman in his book after nationalism, which is an excellent book that I reviewed recently. And I drew upon for this article, they had a sort of Israelite like covenant with God. And what Hannah Nicole Jones's piece I felt did was slot in, um, which is not exactly new, but, but, but did it in an interesting way was slot in black Americans experience with what was usually preserved to, for the pilgrims, you know, on who, who landed on P- Plymouth rock and so on and so forth. It literally, it, the narrative begins in the same way as the pilgrims, they, they uh, arrive on the shore. And instead of the, if you wanted to look at it in biblical terms, cause I think it draws a lot on, on this biblical narrative instead of the, as the foundation, the return to Zion and the, and the, and the foundation of Israel, uh, the uh, new Israel in, in America, this is begins with the Babylonian or, uh, or Egyptian captivity. And the people in captivity are the only people who kept faith with the democratic principles of the country. So I think that that played, that upset people deeply because I don't think that they were willing to view, I think it's difficult for people to view, not that they have to, but I think this is what it's especially provocative, is it's very difficult for, to view Black people for as sort of founding fathers type role. So, you know, the, the slaves having this, in this ideological retelling or as having this, um, structural cognate position to the the pilgrims and the Puritans is just in, not something people can handle because they have to view them as a kind of passive group that needs to be rescued. And, you know, so I don't think this was really about historical fact at all. It was about a certain ideological reimagining of the, of the, of the country's history, but in a way was in keeping with a long-term tropes and and themes of of American nationalism, and was quite nationalistic. In her her essay, in the end, you know, endorses a very full-throated American nationalism that's routed through the experience of suffering and redemption, but is nonetheless really nationalistic. It is not saying American nationalism. Uh, is a mistake she says no i believe that i was wrong i understand now my father was correct to endorse uh, american patriotism but it has to be understood in a, in a certain way and i sort of for fun but i i think there's something to it i you know there is a certain echo in hannah jones's thought to uh michelle foucault has a lecture he did talking about uh, the introduction of what he calls race race discourse in European history 
And he gives a positive spin on it, which is almost the precursor of what we might call identity politics now, which is that race, the, 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 the discourse of race struggle viewed history in terms of conflict and subjugation and um, did not accept the hegemonic narrative about a single overarching justice that everyone got the same deal under. It says, no, there has always been a bad deal for us. It's always been a struggle. The laws are a lie. Uh, you know, it's just a continuation of the war and the, and the enslavement and enslavement. So I thought it was very interesting that, you know, in, in a way that de- deconstructed or put a, um, a different, View, way of viewing things on both things is that ultimately these are in the coordinates of very old traditions of thinking about Amer- American nationhood and stuff that goes beyond back to England um, and ideological tropes and and themes that were uh, developed around the time of the English Civil War and the struggle with the monarchy and so on and so forth. So that, what I just, I just thought it was very interesting that these 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 patterns repeated themselves. Um, and I think that's a little bit why it upset people because it poked at this mythical substrate that people are not quite totally aware of, but is very foundational for the way they think about their identities, the way they think about uh, the country and their place in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, and um, I was not familiar, I think I must have the Goldman uh, the Goldman's idea about these different ways that countries like understand their, their selves or their self-conception is uh, Covenant, Crucible, and the third one is Creed. Um, yes. And all the so all these are somehow mixed up in you know how, how Americans understand what it means to be American and yeah this is book is it on nationalism or after nationalism it's called after nationalism um, and so I haven't read the book but there's a uh, the the podcast um, your enemy has an interview with with Goldman and that's interesting and lays out some of the basics but um, yeah just thinking about this as like myths that we all have internalized, even people who even Americans who are very critical of yeah. American policy. Like we all like we sort of from childhood are instilled in these myths and it's hard to, um, and then if, if someone tells you that you were something you were told as a child and, and implicitly believe still is not true or is different than you thought it was, then that makes people angry. And, um, and like, so when I, I was thinking back to, you know, when I took AP U.S. history 20 years ago, literally, um, we, we had like a standard textbook for the period. Mm-hmm. And then the, my public high school teacher also assigned us, uh, Howard Zinn, a people's history of the United States. He's, and he, I remember he said at the beginning, this is our alternate text, um, for the class. And I never heard of Howard Zinn before. And, you know, so I, and I haven't read in 20 years, but Howard Zinn is basically like, it's a, a Marxist reading of American history in which every incident is actually about, uh, the exploitation uh, of the power, powerful class or capital of, um, you know, uh, natives, uh, black people, immigrants, workers, uh, you know, the, the basically yeah, American history is one like swindle after another and people being dispossessed and treated badly, et cetera. And so, yeah, that was, that was being taught at a, 
you know, public high school in northern New Jersey 20 years ago. And, and no, no parents got right. angry about that. Um, maybe they didn't even know because parents were not Probably paying as much attention about what their kids were being taught 20 years Probably ago. Not. Um, and this was not obviously Howard's in, you know, people are still reading people's history in the United States. Uh, and, um, you know, maybe people are still getting angry about Howard's in, but it, it, just like this, in the beginning, I was thinking like, why, why is this making people so mad? Like alternate readings of us history is, you know, this, this is not a new thing, but this idea that it's, we're talking more about the myths and, um, and then that Hannah Jones is not rejecting the myths, but saying like black Americans are, are the true Americans. And this is actually an idea that, um, the, the first time someone articulated this, that it came home to me was actually Glenn Lowry on this platform years ago when he mentioned that the average, the average black person, their ancestors have been in America longer than the average white person because the, um, transatlantic slave trade ended in absolutely 1808 or whatever. And, yeah. um, and most white people, you know, there a lot of white people, at least their ancestors came like after civil war. And so there's, right. a, there's a claim that black people have to be much like truer Americans, real Americans than, yes. you, you know, uh, you and I, whose ancestors came from Eastern Europe or something or central Europe, um, a hundred years ago, Western and, Europe. <laughs> um, well, I, you know, I have, I have both Eastern and Western because of you know, the Cohen and the Wing. Okay, okay, um, me too, me too. But, but yeah, and so there's this, you know, there's, there's, so the xenophobia and nativism that's part of, you know, reactionary conservative politics in America, like, you know, you can't say the black people, you know, go back where you came from or, or something, like they are, they've been here longer than you have. Um, and so, yes, yeah. And Lowry, but Lowry is one of the people who was really exercised by 1619 and he saw it as, sort of a continuation of, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coatsism or something of saying like the American project is, has like a poison seed with it from the start and inherently rotten. And the whole thing is, you know, and so the, like I said, black people are never gonna have justice in America. And so you might as well give up. Maybe that's a caricature of how Glenn Glenn see it, but. um, No, I think that's probably about right. Yeah. Yeah. About his interpretation of that quote unquote Afro-pessimist body of work. I don't quite think, I mean, maybe elsewhere, Nicole Hannah-Jones has said things like that, but in the essay, in the specific essay, it's a full-throated endorsement of, of, of American nationalism with the caveat of black election uh, within that as, as election a kind being, of, uh, it, the elect. like in the, in the Calvinist yeah. term. I like that. In a, I don't think that that's, historically factual as a troll or as a out of sheer perversity of of the appropriation of kind of wasp myths i think that that's kind of great and funny i don't know if she was intending to be satirical or have a that kind of subversive thing i i also think it's a it is in in, in some sense as you're pointing out it deserved a deserved claim because yeah, I mean, most many people who claim to be um, true blue Americans, their families probably came in the second half of the 19th century, if not in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are certain things I like about it. What I, what I, what gives me pause about it is just its continuation. I am a pluralist and I don't believe that anybody has the claim. I'm not particularly offended when, when 
by by sort of wasp feelings of ownership about America because they don't have that much power anymore. And it's a little quaint and it's like, yes, yes, you, your family came here a very long time ago. I'm sure you feel very possessive. Isn't that nice? You, uh, you know, I, fe- I don't feel any resentment of that, as, uh, but I imagine when there was actually wasp ascendancy and there was the only people in the, who, who had any power in the country, the ideology of their being the original Americans was obnoxious to people who had aspirations to, you know, to live better or more participate or participate more in the governance of the country and uh-huh. live, you know, I'm sure that ideology at one time was obnoxious. Today it's kind of quaint, you know, no one, it's not the same as white nationalism. No white nationalists. I mean, they take, they draw, they draw from the tropes from these things, but no, the, the people who are, the, the people who it would be very, funny to meet somebody who sort of believed in kind of waspy uh puritans and pilgrims version of america and coming down you know that that's just new england kind of new england americana would be funny you don't meet too many people who unironically uh, you know believe that believe that stuff anymore um so it doesn't really offend me and the black version of it doesn't really offend me either i don't really think that it's I don't feel if, if this, you know, there's some justice to the claim and I like it out of a certain level of perversity for it subverting, you know, uh, white nationalist thoughts about um, American history. So it doesn't particularly offend me. What, what I think is important to remember though, is that this is a pluralist country and the conceit that some people are more American than others when it goes beyond mere harmless, it can go beyond mere harmless ethnic pride into something more dangerous. Now, do I think there's any danger of that in coming out of Nicole Hannah Jones' piece? No, I don't think this is a, 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 but that has to be qualified where I think that most nationalisms have these potentials to turn into something toxic and something that is quite unhealthy. So my general problem with it is my my pausing about nationalism in gen- as a as an ideological theme in general. Not as critique of the U.S. history, which I think is rather mild, and not its uh, not it, the fact that it's black nationalism, which is I think what really drives people crazy is it's just the fact that they're black and people can handle it. So I would say my hesitations are about just about my hesitations with nationalism and my interest in it or my not sympathy, but what I find compelling is the fact that nationalism is quite stirring and, and plays on the imagination and the heartstrings. And, you know, I can understand why it, it inspires the, the you know people to go so crazy about it um but i would say as a someone who doesn't quite believe in nationalism to begin with or has a very qualified version of american nationalism the 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 the, the patriotism or the the raw raw patriotism of the no Hand jones essay was what i found to be a little bit what i couldn't quite get 
get along with, not its criticism of the American past, uh-huh. which I think if, if you're a grown up, you should be able to deal with. I mean, you, you know, it's not. <laughs> you should be, but yeah. <laughs> there's plenty of people. A lot who... of people can't. I, I, don't, I don't quite believe this. I, I, I don't quite believe this. Okay, so there's this critique of there's this critique of the what they what people call there's a few people who actually believe in an afro pessimism but then there's there's that that critique is extended to people who just have a kind of extremely critical view of the american past and they say oh i think that it is probably I think it's a mistake to be to optimistically say, "Oh well, you know, we can solve all these racial issues, or we should just ignore them." I think there's still persistence. Of, of, I mean, it, you, you would have to be kind of crazy to say that there's not persistence of racism in the United States. You know, I have some optimism that those things can be solved. Uh, you know, through democratic means. I mean, but I think that the it's often slightly reactionary knee-jerk or actually in bad faith to say things that are have this critical perspective about race in the United States are degrading the national substance because we'll never it will always have a stain and we'll always have a original sin and we'll never get over it I mean there's nothing wrong with having that consciousness of sin either I mean we're a Calvinist's country and you know like there's always okay to have the you know lincoln as 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 sam points out in his book we're an almost chosen nation you know they're they're and even in the even in the old testament you know the prophets come and remind israel i'm speaking metaphorically now so don't freak out people um of of its faults and why it's running into problems. So, so I, you know, this is my own corny version of American patriotism is this old liberal descent is patriotic sort of BS, but I believe it, which is that, you know, these, these criticisms of the United States are these pointing out even fundamental flaws that, that are, you know, thorny or maybe even, you know, will always torment us to some degree to me is not saying, Oh, you know, it's not a cause for despair or saying we, we, these these voices should not be listened to, and they have to be written out of uh, out of the discourse. Mm-hmm. Do I sometimes disagree or find the tones obnoxious or the narrative to be unconvincing? Sure, I think. It, but as I was trying to point out in my piece, I think this is deeply American and intrinsically a part of our national imagination on these topics, and is a variation on those themes is not something terribly radical um, is actually, well, maybe radical in the sense that it goes back to the roots of our own country, but it's not something new and foreign. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I think a lot of these things have, uh, you know, in the black radical tradition, which goes back you know, quite far in the United States have been repeated and, and, and uh, ha- have a lot of purchase there and, and have their origins there. So, uh, and, and, you know, the tradition is American or much of this. So I think, you know, the, the Nicole Harry Jones's conception of the United States is not quite mine, um, but it doesn't offend me to the degree it seems to offend some, 
white and even black liberals and leftists who believe it presents some kind of obstacle to the realization of the country. I think to the extent that it does is not in exactly the way that they think it does. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, I, there wasn't the, uh, like the world socialist website did this critique of, of the, like a, a fact check kind of thing of, um, of, of the essay itself or the package. I mean, I was thinking, as you were saying, this is, this isn't a flesh out idea, but I wonder how this would have played out differently if the, um, you know, if they had published this in like 2011 or, or something during the Obama years, because, you know, Obama presented himself as, as, you know, a mythical figure coming from Hawaii, um, merging white and black, um, you know, merging, uh, sort of, you know, the man from the provinces versus the man from the city. And there's no red America. There's no, uh, Blue America and and one of his famous lines is also in no other country is my story even possible. And so he was, you know, well, obviously, well, maybe not obviously. No, no one running on sort of a critique of American history and myths is ever going to become president. But Obama was very much like America is a flawed country, but ultimately a great country. And uh, like I only I exist, my existence is only possible because of you know the American promise, basically. And a lot of people. Left in the center and the left bought into that, and uh, and then you know the Trump years, Trump's election really shattered that in a lot of ways. And you know, plenty of people called Trump un-American, and um, but in many ways, you know, Trump is a very American, another character who could only emerge in America in various ways, um, and you know, just representing different strains. But um, yeah, would this have, you know, if if this had come out back when everyone, you know, was happy about, you know, electing the first black president and so forth, it, it, it probably would have been somewhat different, but also, I don't know, it, it, it may have struck people differently. And, you know, Trump saying, you know, make America great again is all, is another way of trying to bring people back to some mythic past of, I've said this before in the show, you know, 1950s sitcom America, because he's a television a creature of television and that's that's what he sees yeah, absolutely so it's even absolutely. more of an obvious myth than you know the <laughs> the israelites coming uh coming to the promised yeah. land um so so yeah and and also i don't know i mean i i thinking of saying things are you know quintessentially american or someone is un-american like this debate how would this debate play out in other countries are there are there people who are saying you know in I assume there's people in France who say like this is un French to, to do something like this, uh, you know, XYZ and and you know, you you're someone who writes about the um <laughs> the history of France and um the Dreyfus affair. So, you know, the, the core um parts of different countries' identities, you know, obviously comes up, but you know, we still we still definitely believe well, that they have a very messy problems right now with worse than the United States in a way, where their version of universalistic patriotic nationalism does not really deal very well with pluralism and ours is a little bit more comfortable with it. I mean, there is, there is a parts of French nationalism that are similar to American nationalism, um, but they are much more hostile to plurality and pluralism than the United States is, which is just so built on it and so unavoidable that, you know, it's, it's just, you know, it, it's, it's very difficult to come up with an American nationalism that doesn't have to deal with it in some way, or, you know, either by 
you know, there, there, there's, there's a few ways of dealing with it. It says like, okay, we're all becoming one people here. It's a melting pot, as you know, Sam says in his book, or we all follow one set of beliefs or, you know, we are sort of in this relationship with our past that, you know, is a, you know, we have a, a select group of people that are, you know, the descendants of the origin and, you know, they, they transmit down to us, you know, what, what we, what, what we started this whole project with. Mm-hmm. None of those things solve the problem. I mean, there's just the irreducible pluralism in this country and disagreement. And, you know, we believe that it's important to adopt one of these stances or another but they're never going to solve, there's always going to be disagreements. So I think just not, not hoping for um, like a, not hoping for some sort of way to solve these issues and just realizing, you know, within a certain, within a certain level of intensity that hopefully doesn't get too much. There's not going to be disagreements about what we are as Americans. You know, that's always going to be a topic of debate and, and disagreement and the nature of the country is what is at stake always. And I think that it's a mistake to believe that it can be fixed for once and for all time. Hopefully, I mean, I believe what I didn't, what I, you know, what I found a little bit, I do not like, I, I think that sometimes these narratives about the history of the United States that are extremely hypercritical or only point out the bad things and so on and so forth, don't, don't give, you know, enough recognition of the complexity of certain issues. I didn't like, for instance, so this, Nicole Hanger. So this is like the yeah. Z, Howard Zinn's perspective. Of, I don't like his. Yeah take on the United States history, even though what some of what he says is undeniably true. I didn't like, for instance, the characterization in Nicole Hannah Jones's essay of Abraham Lincoln as a, you know, intrinsically racist and, and kind of wanting to colonize, uh, send, you know, freed men back to Africa, which was based on a scholarship, a libertarian scholar whose entire life is about trying to make Abraham Lincoln look like a, uh, like a tyrant and an evil person because that's his <laughs> political project. And I think that actually, you know, Lincoln was, had racist views. I mean, there's no doubt about it, but he also didn't. There were views of his that were quite humane and surprising and modern and, and, and revolutionary. Um, so I think there's this, the reduction and simplification on that, that happens. I don't, care for sometimes but um you know it doesn't make me livid with rage in the way it seems to make some people no (laughs) i i i I find that to be a little bit strange and i think it's just because it plays with these deep kind of imaginative structures about the way we think about the united states as having some kind of coherent identity and if you just think we don't have that much of coherent of an identity uh it's easy to, um, you know, not be that upset by these things. Yeah, there's never yeah. going to be some final, um, you know, every, every everyone agreeing that this is what America means or 
like, you know, a, a, we can't even agree on a vaccine that works that everyone should take it. Like, you know, we're, we're not going to these giant concepts of what the, what the country symbolizes and stands for. There's never going to ever, there's not going to be some point of national unity um, in which we're all, uh, you know, reading from the same hymnal or something. No, it's, and maybe it would happen. not even be a, it would not even be a good thing. It would, it would be boring. I mean, that's, that's for sure. Uh, well, look at, look at the moments of national unity have gotten us was Afghanistan, which we're, we're now having trouble getting out of and Iraq, which was a total disaster, even more of a disaster. Yeah. And uh, do, do you remember that Glenn Beck had this thing where he was trying to call the nine, the nine twelve project where he was trying to bring back a sense of unity that Americans felt on September 12th. Right, and that was obvious bullshit. <laughs> yes. So it's like, yeah, we, we don't returning to the, sanctified days of when everyone was traumatized and freaked the fuck out and thinking they were about to be blown up. Um, like we, yeah, some people think we want to return to the, those days of national unity. Um, yeah, unity, so it, yeah. it's a huge it's country. A, yeah. it's, it has a crazy history. It's full of insane people. It, the fight is going to continue forever. As, as far as I can tell, um, you yeah. know, we've, we've got a little long, maybe we should, Sure. Wrap it up there. But anything else you want to say about this particular this particular essay, which you know, the link will be below on the Belonging site to the pieces we discuss. Um, no, that's pretty much the long and the short of it. But <laughs> okay. uh, yeah. Well, well, thanks for coming on, John. It's it's been um, it's been an uh, interesting conversation for sure. Yeah. And so, if people want to follow your work, uh, they can follow you at Substack. So that's John Gans G A N Z dot Substack dot com. And you have both a subscribe, a subscription, you know, pay for and free posts as well. And then yes. you are also on Twitter, Lionel yes. underscore trolling. Um, yes, one of the, one of the great Twitter handles. Thank um, you. And, uh, p- you know, people can follow me, um, on Twitter or, uh, at RACW. Actually, I, I recently started a Substack that is just basically links oh, round up. Welcome. Yeah, like, um, it's you know uh, starting off very slow, but it's I'm just it just links to things I'm in, I read that or consumed that I thought were interesting. So that is also reacw.substacks.com, and um, yeah, people can they can like, they can rate, they can thumbs up, they can share, they can um, review, they can subscribe, they can uh, do none of the or all those things. Uh, this is America. It's it's you know it's ultimately up to you. You decide what your reality is. <laughs> uh, and, uh, right. <laughs> Yeah, this is America. Uh, um, there's no denying that. Okay, so anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Nope. Uh, that I think we talk, covered all the topics. Okay. But uh, thanks for having me on. It's it's been it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, so sure. thanks also to our viewers and listeners, and we'll see you next time. Okay. Bye bye.